We're in the book of Romans. It's been so exciting to be um, in this book and a new book. Um, and I am, I just have a, a real hope in my heart, just that the Lord is going to use this book in an incredible way in our church. Uh, if you know anything about Romans chapter one, you know that we're just, we're in for um, some excitement over the next few weeks. And today is kind of part three leading up into this big, um, really legal treatise to show uh, the, the condemnation of humanity because of sin. And so um, just really encourage if you haven't been here the last couple weeks, get on our YouTube page, get on our podcast, listen to the teachings that you've missed. These are foundational teachings uh, that will help show us why we are where we are right now in human history and in our culture, in our country. And, uh, and so Romans chapter 1 today, and we're going to be looking at uh, verse 21 through 25. In her book titled The World Turned Upside Down, Melanie Phillips uh, wrote, as an agnostic but an observant Jew, and she wrote uh, maybe 10 years or more ago, quote, society seems to be in the grip of a mass derangement. There is a sense that the world has slipped off the axis of reason, thus posing the question, how is anyone to work out who has the answer in the midst of such a babble of experts, quote unquote, with so much conflicting information? Then she sets out the case that there has been a departure from reason and from logic because objectivity has been replaced in large measure by ideology. And so as we go through the book of Romans, we're going to see why this world is turned upside down. Even today in our text, we'll see that objectivity and just being reasonable has been replaced with just putting yourself in an ideological camp. And so if you look in Romans chapter 1, we'll kind of lead up to our text today by starting in verse 16, where Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. And really, these statements leading up to our text and into our text today there are a lot of connecting statements. It starts out in verse 16, and really 16 is connected uh, as well, but it, it's kind of your base. It, it says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the good news of Jesus, what he's done, God's plan of salvation. I'm not ashamed of it, even though the world would say that the gospel is foolishness. And to us, it's the power of God. So I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Do you know what the gospel is? The gospel is the good news. The good news that God created us in his image to have fellowship with him and to be with him and to be like him. And even though we tore that down and destroyed so much of that because of our rebellion and our sin and our saying no to God, uh, God still pursued us and pursued relationship with us. Even though we were at rebellion against him and at war with him, he sent his son Jesus to live among us, to be obedient, to do what we could never do. Even though we'd be tempted uh, in every way and sin, Jesus is tempted in every way and never sins. And yet he would go on to die a sacrificial death in our place. Even when we were at war with him, he died in our place so that if anybody would believe upon him, trust in him and in his sacrifice and his blood and understand his blood atones for my sin, 
then you will not perish and the wrath of God will not be upon you, but you will have everlasting life, everlasting life. And not only that, you'll be given the Holy Spirit inside of you who will help you live and obey and want to know God and understand the Bible. You'll be given power from the Holy Spirit to go out and be a part of the army of God to tell the world about him, that the world could be reconciled. All the part of this good news is that Jesus is coming back. He's going to catch us up in the air. We're going to be with him. He's going to bring us back to the earth. He's going to rule and reign for a thousand years from the throne of David in Jerusalem. And we will always be with the Lord. Even after that, he's going to remake the world to go back to its pre-fall state. And we will once again be in paradise with him. You see how he brought it from paradise to paradise? This is the good news. And Paul says, I'm not ashamed of any of that. And so you might say, well, why? And he says, for it is the power of God unto salvation for anyone who believes. That's why I'm not ashamed of it. Why else aren't you ashamed of it? Well, verse 17, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. That's why I'm not ashamed of it. Verse 18, it says the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. That was our text last week. Righteousness of God is revealed through the gospel and the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against anyone who's not walking in righteousness. And why is the wrath of God revealed from heaven against all mankind? Here's a connecting word in verse 19. Because... And if you have a teenager like me, sometimes their answers are just because. No, I'm just kidding. That was really more me when I was like, because. You know, uh, Paul goes a little deeper. Because, why is the wrath of God revealed against the unrighteousness and ungodliness of men, the wickedness, the evil, the impiety of man? Because, 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 because. Okay, moving on from because. Because what may be known of God is manifest to them, for God has shown it to them. People can know God. What? How? Since verse 20, the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. Even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Why is the wrath of God coming down from heaven against wicked and evil and impious people. Because since creation, they've known better. Since creation, they've known there's a creator and they've seen his handiwork on display. We studied all of that last week. I've got too far to go today to really dive into all of that again. But Johnny did such a good job with that song, how creation reveals his majesty. Heaven and earth declare the glory of God. And we sang that out today. And it says at the end of verse 20 that so revealing is create, uh, cre- creation that mankind is, it's two words at the end of verse 20, without excuse. Without excuse. And so, really, the title of my message today it's Without Excuse, Without Reverence. And without gratitude, part two. Remember last week, that was also the title. We're without excuse. I put myself in that camp. Without excuse. And then it continues. uh, Why is the world turned upside down? Well, we're looking at it in verse 21. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God. Nor were thankful but became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. I'm going to say it at least three times today. I know it because I was reading through my notes. I'm like, put this in, put this in, put this in. And here's what it is. These verses set up the stage for us 
as to the list of heinous sins that are going to follow. And you know what they are. And you know how well they apply to this day and age. And my heart and your heart and what we're seeing in the media and in the, in the news and everything. How did we get here? How did the world get turned upside down? All of these verses are setting the stage to really get into this list of sins that shows us that apart from Jesus, we are without hope. And there's a number of words and phrases that are used that you might underline. In my notes, I put them in red. Uh, in my notes, I'm a color-coded guy. And so red always has to do with either the fallen condition of man, what's called the fallen condition focus, and the depravity of man and the sinfulness of man, or, or it has to do with danger. You know, anyone here have a rifle or a firearm and when that safety is off, what color is the safety? Red. That's what I go to like, whoa, you know, whoa, everybody stop, be safe, you know? And, and here we go. Here's a list of words that um, really show the fallen condition focus. And I wonder if you can pick them up as we continue through the rest of this chapter. Although they did not go know God, I'm sorry, although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God nor were thankful, became futile in their thoughts, foolish hearts were darkened. Picking up on the fallen condition focus of the text. Well, let's start out. Although they knew God. And number one here today, knowledge. If you're taking notes, just number one, knowledge. They knew God. We studied that last week. All of creation reveals his handiwork, his majesty. There's a God. There's a creator. Outside testimony of creation. Inside testimony of conscience. Creation and conscience. We know that there's a God. And Charles Spurgeon wrote back in the 1870s. The Prince of Preachers said, Will you kindly notice that according to my text, Knowledge is of no use if it does not lead to holy practice. They knew God. It was no good to them to know God, for they glorified him not as God. So my theological friend over there who knows so much that he can split hairs over doctrine, it does not matter what you think or what you know unless it leads you to glorify God and to be thankful Nay, your knowledge may be a millstone about your neck to sink you down into woe eternal unless your knowledge is turned into holy practice. And so they knew God, but they did not glorify him as God. And so today we're going to learn and how merciful of God to bring you here to this park to maybe find that this is you. You know so much about God in so many ways and you've grown up in such a godly country with so many opportunities to hear. And yet in all of your knowledge, you don't really know. Always learning, but never able to come to the knowledge of the truth, Paul says. Although they knew God, they didn't glorify him as God. Uh, the theologian Young concludes that this text surveyed reflects the fact that human beings confronted with God's creation have an unthematic awareness of the creator. And Young defines unthematic awareness as, quote, a passive and spontaneous mental activity based on observation. It's not a deliberate, rational process. And Craig goes on to say, when one is thrown into a den of lions, there's an immediate awareness that this is a dangerous situation from which one must escape. In a similar way, when one is thrown into the created world, one becomes aware of his or her created um, I don't use this word often. Finitude. Finitude. Okay. I would say finiteness, but I know that's not right. Okay. We're aware of our... Uh, creaturely... I guess it's finitude. Sorry, I know that's not a big deal, but you look it up, guys. Have Google tell you. And they become of their 
aware of their vague sense. Oh, there it is again, of infinitude. You got to read your notes out loud, I'm told. It doesn't do any good to read it in your head. And yet none of us will ever forget this important word. The human mind perceives that whatever lies beyond must be the creator who alone should be worshipped. Other scholars, aside from Young, adopt another attitude, although they don't articulate it quite as clearly. N.T. Wright says, Paul clearly does believe that when humans look at creation, they are aware of, at some level, the power and divinity of the Creator. And Schreiner says, God has stitched into the fabric of the human mind his existence and power so that they are indistinctively recognized when one views the created world. Others take another approach reading this text and argue that Paul believed that some knowledge of God is discernible through creation when people uh, engage in rational contemplation Fitzmaier says, although God cannot be seen with human senses, he's perceived in his works by the human mind in the contemplation of the created world and in reflection on it. A human being perceives great unseen behind it all, the omnipotence and divine character of its maker. And Craig says, the majority of scholars, even those who discern a natural theology in these verses, said it wasn't Paul's purpose to provide natural theology, nor that he thought such knowledge could be saving in and of itself, but rather they insist that he employed it to highlight human culpability. In other words, that humans are without excuse. We look at our world and we say, yeah, they're without excuse. But I hope you're humble enough to lump yourself into that. You got to be humble. Check the ego at the door and realize I'm the problem with it all. I'm in this without excuse category. And even though I knew there was a creator, and in my case, raised to know there was a savior as well, not only have I inherited a sinful nature from my great-great-great-grandpa Adam, you might know of him, but then I've imputatively added sin to my account by willingly going with the flow and saying, yeah, my flesh kind of likes this. And so the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all Rory's out there who in ungodliness and unrighteousness time and time again have suppressed the truth in unrighteousness. Even though I know there's a creator and what makes it even worse is I've known that there's a savior and my, my flesh drives after that. And I'm without excuse. And the good news of the gospel is Jesus has called me to know him by experience. And in relationship with him to now glorify him as God. And we see here in our verse today, even though they knew him, they did not glorify him. And God wants to move us to a place of knowing him and glorifying him and worshiping him and coupled with glory is gratitude and so we see in our text they did not glorify him as god nor were they thankful so number one today i gave you it knowledge number two glory and number three gratitude or thanksgiving part of our fallen condition and our rebellion against this creator is not worshiping him and not being thankful. And Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 3 that in the last days, perilous times will come. 
And then he goes into a list that is very Romans 1-esque. I don't want to spoil anything in the weeks to come, so I'm not going to read Paul's list to Timothy. But one thing that he says to Timothy that will be evident in the end days that perilous times are coming is that people will be unthankful. People will be unthankful. And so one of those signs of the times that Jesus says, hey, you know, red in the morning, or red in night, sailors delight, red in the morning, sailors take warning and all that stuff, you know, signs, sailors know how to sail the seven seas. He says, you need to know the signs of the time. And one of the signs of the times, of perilous times coming, is that men will be unthankful. So I love when Adam leads worship and he leads us in that song, Gratitude, because it's just a good time in these perilous times to say, not here, Lord, not here. <laughs> right here, there's a lot of gratitude going your way, right? With my arms stretched wide, I will worship you. Come on, my soul. Don't you get shy on me right now. Let that lion out and be grateful to the Lord for all that he's done unthankfulness, ungratitude. It's a sign of depravity in the human heart. And rather than unthankfulness, Hebrews tells us in 1315 that we should continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. That is, you've heard of fruit of the fruit of the loom, right? <laughs> Hebrews tells us the fruit of the lips, fruit of the lips regularly offer sacrifice to the Lord, fruit of the lips, that is, giving thanks to his name. How often do you thank the Lord? Just thank the Lord. Look around how good he's been. We sing another song, almost makes me cry every time. And the bridge is, you've been so, so good to me. You've been so, so good to me. Oh, to think of where I'd be if not for you, if not for you. Are you a thankful person? Just, just let that be a practice that the Holy Spirit bubbles up out of you. Even today, so thankful, thanking the Lord. Thank man. Oh, Lord, you got us here today and you provided a vehicle for our family. And on these hot days, it's got air conditioning. And oh, Lord, wow, the town and, and just thankful for our, even as hard as it may be at times, our government and this and that. Be thankful for, man, so thankful for our home and our view and oh, my children and the health and getting us through. Oh, Titus is out of his boot. You know, he broke his foot. He's out of his boot. Thank you, Lord. I just, I thought I crushed my foot at a cow step on me last Saturday. Been limping around in major pain. Finally drove to urgent care in Bend two days ago. Got an extra. I was like, it's broken. I'm going to have to buck up and wear the boot all summer, you know. And no fractures, you know. And it's just like, thank you, Lord. Still hurts like a mamma jamma, you know. But thank you, Lord, it's not broken, you know. It just, just, oh, just whatever. You, can you think of too much to thank the Lord? Thank you, thank you. And you know what? What about you get your eyes focused on the junk and the crud and the bitterness and the, the bitter cup and you just, and then you become bitter, you know? And did you know, even in the midst of the pain, you can start being thankful and it will tune your heart a whole different direction and you will have joy in the midst of sorrow. Isn't that incredible? Just let that be a practice of our church where we are more and more thankful. Paul tells the Corinthians that we would have thankfulness abound to the glory of God. And what happens when we're not glorifying our creator and we're ungrateful to the creator this fallen condition focus that it is worded so strongly that they became futile in their thoughts. Futile in their thoughts. I'd encourage you to underline this. It's going to set us up for the verses to come. But the fourth word for you to write down today is futility. 
futility in thoughts, or maybe you're a King James trumpeter here today, and maybe your version says, vain in their imaginations. Vain imaginations. Imagine this, to say over billions and billions of years, matter formed, and then boom, the moisture and chemicals were all just right. And that that little single cell over billions of years had this complex eye develop. And as it saw the sun, a freckle came upon the eye and a scraped belly sore morphed into a leg. We laugh at this because it's foolishness that comes from a futile thought or vain imagination. They're, they became futile in their thoughts. And here's another fallen condition focus. Their foolish hearts were darkened. So here's the fifth word for you right now today. Foolishness. Futility and foolishness. Speaks of unintelligence. And the implication of that is wicked in the Greek. Unintelligent and by implication, wicked. And it speaks of a heart being made even darker. So a futile thought leads to futile hearts. Or maybe the futile hearts leads to, I don't know, it's all this, you know, it's combined, right? <laughs> futile thoughts and foolish hearts. In verse 22, professing, I love this verse, professing to be wise, they became fools. I think I like this verse because I'm not super, you know, I'm not like the genius guy, you know, no big degrees hanging on my wall. I, I profess to be a fool who is still a fool. That's me in this verse. But that there are those who profess to be wise and have it all figured out, but they become fools. Psalm 14, 1, easy verse to memorize, that the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And many of you, you've been around the Bible teaching long enough, and you know what the literal translation of that verse is, don't you? You all know it. You're already thinking it. It's that the fool has said in his heart, no God. Professing to be wise. We have all knowledge. We have science on our side. We've got the lab coat and the stethoscope and the, the light on our head. You know, are we, are we in the, still, the 1918s? You know, the classic doctor look, right? Oh, you know, but so why? We got the, we've got the professorship. We've got the giant uh, classroom on the university with the stadium seating and the whiteboard and the, and the stick. And now it's a laser pointer, you know? I've got all this stuff, and I got it all figured out. I've got the, the, all the different degrees and the plaques and all the honors, and yet they say in their heart, "There is no God," and with that they say, "No God." And Jeremiah prophesies well in ten fourteen. Everyone is dull hearted without knowledge. Every metal smith is put to shame by an image, for his molded image is falsehood, and there's no breath in them. And the Corinthians are told by Paul, where are your wise and where is the scribe? Where's the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? Professing to be wise, they become fools. And if you've been around Bible teaching long enough, you love what the Greek is for that word fool, don't you? You know it. Moranos. <laughs> Professing to be wise, they became... Yeah, guys, that's mean. Mean-spirited that you would say that. All right? In, in that Greek, moranos means... To become insipid, to lack flavor, and to be bland. Isn't that interesting? Then all the knowledge and the wisdom and the degrees and the doctorates and the professors and the science and the channels and the podcasts and the YouTubes and the thises and the thats and we got it all figured out. You're so dull. 
You're so dull, you don't even realize you're flavorless. If you knew who this creator was, you'd realize that your theories are bland. They got nothing on all of this. Indescribable, we sang today. Uncontainable. You're amazing, God. I, I like to add my own lyrics to that song. Holy mackerel. You know, why not be creative with it, right? You put the stars in the sky and you know them by name. With these smart looking men with master's degrees and doctorates and science lab coats, they say we are intelligent. And with that, we see that they are without reverence. 23 says that they changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. So verse 23, along with verse 21 and verse 25, they are all key because they tell us why the world is turned upside down. God is not being glorified as he ought to be. That's why we're here. That's why we're seeing what we see. That's why we've got this going on in our body, in our health, in our home, in our community. That's why there's the conflict in our local news, in our state news, in our you know, national news, in the world, and what's going on in France right now. I mean, I don't even know what's going on in France except that my Twitter feed's blowing up. I don't even know who's in the right and whatever's going on, but there are fires and explosions and riots and people get their hands chopped off and like just horrible stuff going on in France. Why is all this, why is it in this state of decay and disgrace? People are not glorifying God as he ought to be glorified. They're not rendering him and esteeming him glorious in a wide application. They're not honoring him and magnifying him. Chapter 3 verse 9 is going to bring it to all of us that we're all under sin. 3.23 is going to say that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And that is the definition of sin. Falling short of the glory of God. Sin has to do first and foremost with God, not people. Sin hurts people. Sin destroys people and marriages and homes and businesses and societies. But that's not the main problem about sin. The main problem of sin is it's a revolver in the face of God. And he is not glorified. As he ought to be. What is sin? It's a defamation of God. A blaspheming, a trampling, a belittling, and a dishonoring of God. The glory of God not honored. The holiness of God not reverenced. The greatness of God not admired. The power of God not praised. The truth of God not sought. The wisdom of God not esteemed. The beauty not treasured. The goodness not loved. The faithfulness not trusted. The commandments of God not obeyed. The justice not respected. The grace not cherished. The presence of God not prized. The person of God not loved. That is sin. And the hurt that it does to people compared to the hurt that it does toward God is secondary. Do you remember when King David stayed home from battle in the spring of the year when kings go out to war? And he saw a lovely, beautiful woman bathing out on her rooftop. You know the story. He sent for her. He pursued her. He lied with her. He impregnated her. He called for her husband to come home so maybe he could make it look like the husband was the dad. And then, and then the husband was a man of integrity and wouldn't go to his wife. And so he had to create this whole murder plan. So he ends up murdering the husband and deceiving and lying about it. And when he was called out on his sin, when the Lord spoke through a prophet and said, I know what you've done. 
And David had a godly sorrow that led to repentance. He wrote Psalm 51. And in the beginning verses of Psalm 51, he says, I acknowledge my transgression to you and my sin is always before me. And in verse 4 of Psalm 51, he says, Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. Against God and God only. He sinned against Bathsheba. He sinned against Uriah. He sinned against Nathan. He sinned against the whole nation of Israel. You and you only, David understood that at the end of the day, it was sin against God that brought all of the other pain. John Piper said, why is it that people can become so emotionally and morally indignant over terrorism, poverty, exploitation, prejudice, injustice of man against man, and feel almost no indignation or remorse that God is belittled by sin, by everybody to the extent that we all deserve to die right now? I'll tell you why. Because it's even in our proper indignation over the hurt of man to man, we sin because we elevate the value of man above the value of God. We are more bent over, uh, out of shape on what man does to man than what man does to God. And even our proper fury is sinful. Even our right anger about injustices are sinful because God doesn't compare. It was Piper that went on to say, we are so much more angry that 3,500 abortions are paid for by our tax dollars or I got ripped off at the store that a law is unjust and the poor suffer without proper medical care than we are about the fact that the poor and rich despise God, belittle God, ignore God. When is that going to get somebody's dander up? Not until God becomes God. And so in Romans chapter 1, Paul is in the mission of restoring the right place of God in our hearts. The consequence of de-godding God is Romans 1.18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against man. Humanism, worshiping man, worshiping creation, Mother Earth. Thinking a tree is God or the wind is God or spirits. It's all illogical. Worshiping the animal kingdom is illogical. The creator is the one we need to serve. And we see here that this de-godding of God where they changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man. They changed the glory of the incorruptible, imperishable God. You know that God is incorruptible. He's imperishable. Jesus, imperishable. Even the Psalms prophesy, and Peter spoke of it in Acts 2, that the Father would not allow the Son's body to see corruption. And it says just before that, because it wasn't even possible that Jesus could be held by death. Because he's incorruptible. Is that one of the lyrics of the song Johnny sang? Indescribable. Incorruptible. You know, he's incorruptible. Fitzmaier may be close to hitting the mark when he echoes Psalm 106, 20. They exchanged the glory for the image of the grass-eating bullock. And he's referencing, of course, the children of Israel, Mount Sinai, worshiping the golden calf, Jeroboam, setting up two calves there up at the, the place of Israel's worship, changing the glory of God for the created thing. Tragic irony is here. The glory of the immortal God is exchanged for mere images that look like human beings. I know we're running out of time. So much to say today. I got some wonderful uh, writings for you. But, you know, they say preaching a sermon, it's like an iceberg, you know. And uh, you have so much there and so much under the water, right? And I only get to sometimes give you what's above the water. That's all you kind of get. So... 
But we want to note the contrast that God is incorruptible, man is corruptible. God is undecaying versus man who is decayed already. And I love the J.B. Phillips translation of these verses. It says, behind a facade of wisdom, they become just fools. Fools who would exchange the glory of the eternal God for an imitation image of mortal man or of creatures that run or fly or crawl. And I remember when I was in high school, I went to a youth retreat and one of the counselors that went to us, um, her name was Sharice Wiest from Lakeview. And I remember we were in Romans and we were considering this passage and just one of our you know, just a lady coming to help watch the kids said something that has stuck with me for 23 years. You never know how you'll impact someone. And she just said this. It's interesting how our worship of automobiles has descended in the same order. Mustang, Thunderbird, Viper. And her son had a Thunderbird. But she's like, it's interesting. You know, it's like, we exchange worship, and sometimes some of you, some of us, we'll see people who are in that category probably in the parades this year that worship the cars. I, I just cars are my idol, you know, or whatever. And it's like interesting how in all of our worship we exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for for animals and man. And and one ancient writer in the three hundreds just said it is just an abomination. That not only, he's like, I can understand we worship some men, they're made in the image of God. I can see the struggle there, but he, he references the Greeks who worship dead men, and it's like, they dead. I don't know if you caught that part. Like, you, you know what's happening to their body right now? Stinky, okay? And, and so in the 300s, these guys were really smart back then, you know? Direct quote, stinky, you know? Um, and, and so our hearts just, we go from anytime we worship an idol, it's from yes, God created or uh, creator, eternal, immortal, incorruptible. And then it just goes down to, I'm gonna, oh, maybe I'll worship this stallion. Oh, it's so strong and just beautiful. Oh, you know, maybe you know, it's going to go down to like the bugs and the spiders and the frogs, right? You know, it's like, oh, yikes. John Stott said, to the fact that the worship of idols is not to be named is the beginning and cause and end of every evil, including sexual perversion, disorder in marriages, and various social ills. And to the conclusion that those who fail to find God in his works are not to be excused. So this is a really key point that sets up the rest of the chapter and all of the gross sins that you know lie there is that sexual perversion and disorder in marriages and other social ills come from dishonoring God. And so... We're going to end there. I had through verse 25 studied. We'll just pick up there. I think it's okay. It leads really well into the, the next verses. And we'll have the worship team come on up. I know. I know you guys. It's like, oh, we're just making it one or two verses each week. And there will be times it will go a little faster in Romans. And But these are just, just major doctrinal truths. Romans is just the Fort Knox of Bible doctrine. Uh, the book of Romans, I know I've heard in the past that it was required by Harvard Law students to memorize the book of Romans. I'm sure that's not the case anymore. But it is just, it is legal. And don't you just kind of get that? I mean, we're just like, we're pulling it apart. And, you know, how many of you like to get those documents and you got to read the fine print? And it's like, these Sundays, we were just down into the fine print, you know. But it's so good. And hopefully today is a day that you've come to terms and come to understand the hard truth that you're without excuse. We're going to get a couple chapters in Romans and anyone that thinks they can stand before God and just 
defend themselves and this is why I did it this way and and this is why I dishonored you and believed in other things and worshipped other things and I did it my way and my how, with who, how, who, whatever I wanted and, and you know what, I was the better person for it and this and that. And, or maybe you'll just kind of try to give a defense for yourself. Well, I, I kept most of the commandments and I was a pretty moral person and I voted red every time and this and that and the other. And it says, every mouth will be stopped and every man will be found a liar. We just got to humble ourselves, friends, and just say, I got nothing that would give me merit to stand before the holy, righteous judge. I got nothing. But I got Jesus. It is because of Jesus, our attorney, our mediator, who offered himself in our place. It's because of Jesus. That we can stand before that judge and that judge will acquit us. And he will call us justified without sin. Because he will look at us through our attorney, Jesus Christ. And you can set your things aside and just move in an attitude of prayer here. And we are like most people of human history really not much different and that we put our trust in our pedigree our nationality our genealogy our education and all kinds of other external factors that might give us some clout with God just one of the heroes of of history in my mind is uh, General Hal Moore from We Were Soldiers, the Ayadrang Valley, Vietnam. And he was asked in his life, do you think you'll go to heaven when you die? And he said, all I can say is I just hope by the end of my life that the good that I've done has outweighed the bad. And my friends, my heart breaks there because I love my heroes, you know. Because if that is where Hal Moore was on his deathbed, he was without hope. And if today you think that just, you know what, I'm just going to keep laboring and hope just the end of my days, it'll be more good than bad. I just assure you right now through pedigree and through your own willfulness, you are without excuse and you will stand condemned before God to face eternity in hell. And that's the hard truth. And I love you enough to say it. But if you would come to Jesus today like a little child, humble, weak, Believing what you're told. Broken hearted for your sin. And you just say, Lord, have mercy upon me. I'm a sinner. And I'm without excuse. And I have de-godded you. And I have gone after so many people, places and things and ideas. And I've worshipped them. And I've been a part of the cause of all this destruction and confusion upon humanity and the globe right now. And I need a savior. I need forgiveness. And right now, you can just ask Jesus right now, forgive me, Jesus. Forgive me of my sins. Every sin I've ever committed from my youth and my childhood all the way to now. Forgive me of the sins I know I'm going to commit. Lord, forgive me of the things I don't even know that I did. I hear today that you're a merciful God. You're a gracious God. And I hear today that the gospel, the good news is the power of God unto salvation. So save me, God. Save me. And as you cry that out to God today, I have the confidence that you can have the confidence that you will be saved. And that you are saved, saved from sin, saved from hell, 
And the Lord is going to work a regenerative, restorative, resurrecting work upon your life beginning today. So cry out to the Lord. Cry out to him for such a work in your life. And for those of us that are Christians, and we've prayed that to the Lord, we've cried that out to the Lord, and things have just been rough, and the struggle is real, and the frustrations, and the anguish, and you're still realizing that there's still a level of that old man that's clinging to you. And the good news today is that the gospel is the power of God to salvation for you, even today. That work of salvation is currently working in you. And you can just rest in that and hope in that and cry out for more of that today as a Christian. You cry out, help me in my marriage. Help me in my parenting. Let let just the power of what Jesus has done work in my home, work in my friendships, work in my job. We cry out today, Lord, let the gospel work in our community as we go out from this place. Let the gospel work in our nation. Let it work in our globe, Lord. It's the power of God unto salvation. Have mercy upon sinners today who have de-godded God, worshipped corruptible things rather than the Creator, so that's how we're going to end today. We're going to worship the creator. We're going to glorify him. We're going to just have gratitude towards him. The remedy of all of this just miry clay that we find ourselves in. The remedy is hearts that sing out to the Lord. Fruit of our lips. The overflow of our heart. Blessing God, thanking God, honoring God, glorifying God, having reverence to God. Let's give him that glory. Will you stand with me? Maybe you prayed that prayer for forgiveness today. And today might be one of the first days that now you can sing out a song of worship to God with a clean conscience. I think those should be some of the loudest and most beautiful voices there are. Those of you that today, you remember that there's hope in the struggle because of what Jesus has done. That ought to bring such gratitude and glory and reverence to God. Let's worship the Lord in his beauty today.